This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalife. On this episode, I interview Nadim Nathu, who's the co-founder of the Knowledge Society, or TKS. TKS is a human accelerator designed for young people between the ages of 13 to 17, and whose mission is to build the next generation of global leaders with a strong sense of purpose, tenacity, leadership, and vision. It's really built around you know, exploring topics like virtual reality, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, in a classroom environment that's collaborative, but also with guidance from world-class mentors. To learn more on what TKS has to offer, visit theksociety.com. Uh, obviously, I've, I've been wanting to, to have you on the podcast for quite some time. We met thanks to uh, a mutual friend, Chiro Jaley, who's the uh, CEO of Tribal Scale at one of his events. Uh, and prior to that, I didn't actually know about TKS now. Granted, that was like two years ago. So since then, it's grown a lot and I've, I've heard of it uh, you know, and, and been very close to it from, from kind of the outside. I watched one of your videos. I love how you put it, man. When you're talking about sort of startups, the incubators, the accelerators that, you know, almost help, I guess, propel early stage uh, companies forward and help boost the, the entrepreneurial ecosystem. You kind of wanted to do that, but for people. And you call it developing unicorn people uh, starting at a younger age. I think it's about 13 to 17. How did this whole thing come about? leaving McKenzie and wanting to start the Knowledge Society. Yeah, so I'll tell you a little bit about that. But going yeah. back to what you talked about, about wanting to build, quote unquote, unicorn people versus like the YCs and the tech stars of the world trying to build unicorn companies, um, a thought experiment that you can do is imagine there was a king or queen of the world, right? Mm-hmm. And their main KPI was to optimize quality of life for all their royal subjects. And every week they got a list of all the things that were adversely affecting quality of life. So you have mental health, climate change, poverty, all those things, right? And imagine them looking at this list and being like, actually, you know what? I'm going to let my royal subjects figure out the answers to all these problems without any help and without even being able to see this list. That's the world today. <laughs> and it's kind of messed up because what that person would do is they would take these people and uh, you know, they, they would I- identify one of these problems and be like, oh, these are the best people to solve these problems. Let's put them together and, and you know, train them to do that. Or let's put these people here and, and do that. And so what, how I think about that is we're not doing a good job of allocating human capital globally, but we have some really successful people like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and, and Jeff Bezos who are widely known for being amazing allocators of capital, regular capital, right? Financial capital. But I don't think there's any institution in the world that's doing a really good job of being an amazing allocator of human capital. And another thought exercise you can do is like, say the Olympics didn't exist, right? right. How many 13 year olds do you think would wake up and go, you know what? I'm going to just dedicate the rest of my life to being super fast in a pool, right? Exactly. Like it, it, it really, I, I doubt that it would happen. What the Olympics does is it provides an intention. It provides a goal. And then you have Olympic level training facilities. Cause even if someone did do that and, and that's something that they're really passionate about for some reason, <clears throat> then you would have to figure out a way to stay dedicated for the next 10 years of your life <clears throat> to be able to hit that goal, right? And you'd have to eat right every single day and you'd have to go to the gym, maybe without a trainer and, and do all these things on top of swimming. And so the probability, the small probabilities kind of multiply together and, and it's very unlikely that would happen. Um, and so the Olympics created this intention to allocate people in the world towards being amazing swimmers. Now, if you think about people who are in pharma or people who are in you know, auto manufacturing, just any industry in the world, why are those people there? It's an interesting thought experiment to do. Um, I would argue it's mostly because of serendipity. It's where you were born, um, maybe what 
your parents sort of exposed you to, or you traveled one day and you, or you saw this one thing online and, or you went to university and then companies recruited from there. Um, but it's not really intentional. And so, I mean, our goal at TKS is we want to develop the infrastructure to solve really important problems in the world. Um, and there's a couple of different approaches you can take to that. I mean, one is like the open AI approach, which is how can you build technical infrastructure for people who are already in positions um, like that to make better decisions. And in some, I think, distant future, the AI actually making these decisions over, over the humans. But um, the approach that we're taking is how can we just increase the amount of pool of people attempting to solve really hard problems and then maximizing their probability of success? And I don't think that's a crazy idea. But when you think about most other institutions that exist today, I would argue most of them are filtering institutions versus human development institutions. So like YC, I would argue is a filtering institution. Yeah. Um, you know, for companies like McKinsey are filtering institutions. Universities are filtering institutions. It's not like you get smart at Harvard, right? A lot of really smart people tend to go to Harvard just by virtue of their accepted numbers and et cetera. And, and I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with filtering institutions. Uh, I think they definitely have their place but I don't know if we have enough human development institutions. I think life is probably the best human development institution, but it's very unstructured. And I mentioned it's very serendipitous. And so how mm -hmm. can we be very intentional about that from a young age? Um, in terms of how we started TKS, my brother and I did a lot of development. So I was at McKinsey, which is like not the exciting piece. And my brother was starting an enterprise security company. And even then, you know, it wasn't super sexy, but uh, his company ended up getting acquired by Box and he was, um, building up and leading their AI machine learning team down there, which is hilarious, by the way, because when he started the company, he didn't even know the difference between a designer and developer. Like he hired wow. a designer to develop his back end. Four years later, he's a head of AI at a multi-billion dollar company, right? Um, Crazy. And, you know, we, we I started getting interest um, or interested in the blockchain space fairly early on as well and, and thinking about how I can play a part in this space. But during that time, we were uh, doing a lot of development work. So, you know, I was in Bangladesh, uh, working with Mohammed Yunus at the Grameen Bank um, on repayment rates and microfinance. We were in Tajikistan building early childhood development centers, Kyrgyzstan helping, uh, you know, playing our part in creating a, a quarter billion dollar university, Honduras, mobility, East Africa, et cetera. And we did most of these things, not, it was, it was through a program or anything like that is this was, you know, there were problems that we wanted to solve. There were areas that we wanted to contribute to. And quite frankly, they were just interesting experiences. So we're like, let's just make that happen. And while we were there, so we always, the point there is we always had a deep desire to have impact and help, help other people. And, we, you know, we can have a whole another conversation about why that's the case. Um, but while we were there, we were like, okay, we, you know, hope we're having some sort of impact being there. But uh, we're also technologists. And so we were thinking in the back of our minds, like, man, this is the first time in human history where people can impact billions at scale. Like a thousand years ago, if you wanted to impact billions, at least throughout history, you have to be like a conqueror or Galileo or, you know, someone who you almost had to get persecuted and to have your impact kind of propagate throughout history. Whereas today, if you have a device, we have this incredible infrastructure where it's possible for anyone. It's possible to write a couple lines of code and give financial literacy to everybody or create mobile wallets for the unbanked, right? Where the, the infrastructure is there to do that. And so... I mean, if, if anybody knows anything about TKS listening to this podcast is we have a focus on exponential technologies as a part of our program, um, but as tools to solve important problems. And so, and, and the reason why we do that, again, another thought experiment you can do is like, think without the internet, there would be, we, we couldn't do e-commerce, right? Mm -hmm. There would be no e 
in the e-commerce, obviously. Without planes, it would be impossible to have international business to the extent that we have it. Without uh, mobile, it would be impossible to have shared economy, um, satellites kind of beaming down the internet to developing countries to leap, leapfrog this infrastructure. Um, so with these technologies, we're able to solve problems that were once impossible. And the interesting thing I like to think about is what are some problems today that are just impossible to solve without these new wave of technologies, right? AI, quantum, nanotech, gene editing, stem cells, blockchain, you name it, right? 5G. Um, and, you know, I, I, let's take cancer as an example. Cancer in the last 50 years as a civilization, we've invested half a trillion dollars into cancer uh, cures, okay? Cancer research. From 2015 to today in North America, cancer mortality rates per capita per capita have increased. More people are dying from cancer now in the most developed countries in the world than before. But this doesn't make any sense. We've invested so much money. We're getting smarter. People are getting connected. We have better technology. Why is this happening? And my hypothesis is like, maybe it was just impossible to cure without the intersection of genomics and nanotech as an example, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing that's really exciting for me. But anyway, so we moved down uh, to the Valley my brother and I kind of met up. Uh, we're, we're in the same place now for a longer period of time because he was running his company and I was kind of all over the world working in places like Japan, Australia, whatever. And, uh, you know, we thought we were going to find a bunch of smart people working on hard problems. And while there's definitely pockets of that, I think there's this recent phenomenon in Silicon Valley probably in the last 10 years where we're starting to see, and, and this is our opinion, uh, a lot of people working on what we call dumb problems like Uber for bartenders and Yelp for dog food. And by the way, those are two companies that don't exist anymore. But if I showed you who the founders were, you would have flipped. They're, they're some of the smartest people. They're two, two very real companies who are founded by really, really smart people. Um, and one of them used to be from uh, Google AI, which is now called Google Brain, who was who building like computer vision architecture. So it's very interesting stuff. But anyway, um, so we were like, okay, uh, what if we had 10 billion bucks in the bank? How would we spend our time? because you know, we don't want to be a hypocrite and I think we want to work on things that matter to us. And there were three problems that we wanted to solve. So uh, the first was affordable housing. <clears throat> the second was food production. And the third was access to diagnostics and drugs. And we were like, and food production being like the impossible foods, so, you know, vertical farming, all that stuff, sell ag type, type stuff. But mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, that, that definitely wasn't uh, popular. So, you know, so those were the three problems. And then we were like, say we dedicated the rest of our lives to solve one of these and we completely knocked it out of the park it doesn't exist anymore. What about these hundreds of other problems that are impacting billions? And it felt like our strategy as a civilization was to cross our fingers, hold our breath and hope that someone came along to solve these problems like Elon Musk or something. And to me, that's a non-strategy, right? And, and a crazy one. And so, you know, when you think about it from first principles, what do you need to do to create more people uh, to solve, to try and tackle these problems and, and maximize their probability of success? It, you know, when you break it down, it is an infrastructure problem which is an education problem, but we weren't thinking about it as education. We're like, let's just be practical with how we, how we do this. And we didn't know if it was going to be a digital thing, a physical thing, whatever. Um, but we were, we knew that we were deeply excited about solving this problem. So we just left everything. Um, we didn't know the name. We didn't have a hypothesis um, to try and figure it out. And, you know, it started off building what we wish we had growing up, which ended up being a decent hypothesis to iterate off of. And three and a half years later, we're seeing some incredible results kids speaking at conferences all over the world in front of like 30,000 people, 50,000 people. 
um, getting jobs at places like Microsoft, IBM, leading startups in the region as young as 14, raising money from some of the top VCs around the world, like Sam Allman, Naval Ravikant, James Cameron, the director, randomly, right? So mm. um, kids' companies getting acquired in, in four months. So we're seeing like a lot of these really interesting results. And, and now we're kind of in uh, scale mode, trying to get this to as many young people as possible. That's amazing, man, really. I mean, what, what, what a crazy story too, in, in the sense of you recognizing that problem. Uh, and I think addressing it in a, in a probably much more uh, applicable, but also scalable way. What I wanted to ask is, I'm kind of curious from your lens, and in a second, we'll kind of dive deeper into the structure, because maybe for someone listening who doesn't or isn't familiar with TKS, at least they'll get that know-how. Um, but for a lot of the schools now, are, do you find that they're, they're sort of getting into, um, into the educational component of tech and really integrating it with the school system? I'm not as aware of that, but I just wanted to get your take. Like, How, how does this kind of fit on top of the traditional school uh, system that, that kids get access to? Yeah, I mean, again, the analogy that I use is if, if you want to be an NBA player, if you want to play for the NHL, it's not like you go to gym class and you're going to be an amazing basketball player. Right. Yeah, it's not like you're going to go to gym class and be an amazing basketball player. So you, you obviously need to go to world-class training and kind of do that consistently. And then, so I think what schools are starting to do, which is great, is at least provide that early level of exposure, mm-hmm. um, some of them, and, and not even all of them. Uh, to talk about this stuff. And then even with that level of exposure, um, there's no way to vet whether that content is actually the best content. So say someone wanted to learn about quantum computing as an example. When you go online, there's tons of resources on quantum computing, even though it's a pre-inflection point field, I would say. Uh, there's still quite a bit. If you typed it in and you read that first, first article and say it's about superposition, how do you know that article about superposition is the best article to read about superposition? So actually vetting the content. Um, but I would say most schools aren't, aren't even talking about that kind of stuff. They might be introducing these concepts of like um, AI or, or CRISPR <clears throat> in, in their classes, but not really uh, you know, taking it to, to, to the next step. Yeah, um, yeah I don't know. Like, if we think about curriculum, so teachers, what I realized are actually amazing. Like they're the ones who care about their kids. They, they want to make sure that their, their students get unique opportunities and can push their thinking forward. Unfortunately, the system that they have to work in is oftentimes pretty rigid. And so the teachers are the ones that are actually trying, to, trying their best and creating time in class to do these things. Uh, but if you think about it from a curriculum perspective, uh, in Ontario, they released uh, it was a couple of years ago maybe it was two three years ago but this new financial literacy curriculum and i was asking some of my my kids what, what was that like and it's like they were getting taught how to use basic excel formulas essentially and that was their financial literacy curriculum. and this is this is just what i heard from them how they felt about it so it clearly wasn't something that they felt was super impactful to them and that that the outcome wasn't being achieved and so i don't know like the world economic forum recently released this <clears throat> this document called top schools uh, of the future, something like that. Mm-hmm. And TKS was named as, as one of those like top schools of the future, which is awesome designation kind of by the world economic forum. But when I was reading all these other schools, you know, some of them are interesting, but I was like, most of them are fine. Like I, it's not clear to me what's the super innovative thing there. Um, and then there was only one other on that list that I can remember that had global ambitions. Um, and it was almost like a, a low touch uh, uh, community based digital solution. And so I was like, man, if this is the extent of people that are working on this problem globally, um, like there, there's a lot of 
pressure, but I would say more so responsibility to, to get this right. Um, and if you ask me, like, what are the top three things that really smart people, or what industries, and this is just my opinion, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, top three industries that really smart people should be working on. I think it's uh, health, energy, and education. And, and those are all very broad, right? In health, there's, uh, I mentioned diagnostics, there's drugs, there's um, medical devices, there's distribution, there's, there's everything. So these are very broad areas. Um, but if you actually look at the state of the world right now and, and within these uh, areas, the distribution of smart people working on them, I'd say probably health is 75%. Energy is maybe 23%. And this is just like based on how I feel, right? So this isn't like uh, yeah, there's not a study around this. So yeah, uh, you know, energy is maybe twenty three percent, and I would say education is maybe two percent. And then that two percent is probably the bottom two percent of the of all the smartest people on that list, right? Working on these things, except for maybe Sebastian Thrun, um, who's yeah. <laughs> you know one of the founders of Waymo and now runs Kitty Hawk, which is a self flying car company and Udacity. But um, you know, I, I actually have a distinction in my mind between content and education. Like content for me is, uh, is actually the best, is, is a good learning tool. But when you're thinking about education and, and developing a holistic person, um, like you, completion rates of online courses on average are like two to 4%. And so this goes back to this whole discipline thing, right? It's we're, we're doing this awesome job creating this infrastructure and there's more content now than ever before. That is honestly world-class, man. Some of Udacity's content is amazing. Like they're self driving car and nano degree um, is, is by the people who the smartest people in the world who are, who are working on these technologies. Um, but again, how do you create this intention? How do you create this discipline? How do you create this community? How do you raise people's bar for difficulty and encourage them to get past it um, and prioritize this over other things? Um, maybe like getting the best grades or, you know, working, stupid hard at your job that you don't really like in the first place you got to have the courage to make a change in your life and i don't think we can expect just people to have this level of wisdom and courage and and whatever and i think communities and institutions and intention and all that stuff creates opportunity to do that so sorry we we digressed a little bit from your initial question uh like that response well and and even the kind of you know looking at the at the structure you know i think it's over 10 months uh, again, you target 13 to 17 uh, year old students. Each cohort has 40 uh, students in it. How did you come to the, like, obviously there was probably a lot of tests and, and trial in the beginning, but kind of curious to see why that structure works uh, perfectly for what you're trying to do. And is 10 months enough to to sort of, you know, uh, you build students is not only awareness, but intellect and uh, knowledge around these different sub verticals of tech. Yeah, so your intuition is absolutely right um, about just us iterating to get to that number. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'm starting to think that 45 is, is probably the best. We thought 40 was going to be the cap. Um, but we're, what we're starting to see, <clears throat> excuse me, is so when we first started, our core size was around 20, 20 to 25, um, because we're like, we don't want them to be too big. But what we found was that when most of the students actually came, so there are some days where you know some people can come or whatever, but when we had like a full 25, it was bumping, right? The vibes were there. They were interacting with each other. And the way TKS yeah. works is it's very collaborative. It's not like lecture style. There's problems um, or, 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 or things that, you know, the students work toward, to work towards every session. Um, and so the more people that are in there or, and the more people that are, you know, at the sessions, the more it's like community-based learning versus um, just like a, a person. In, exactly. And so I think this is one of the biggest fallacies of, traditional education 
which is, um, and I would say this is like the probably like the biggest innovation that gets talked about, especially um, earlier on, like at ECDs and, and things like that, which is the ratio of teacher to students mm -hmm. is the biggest indicator of outcomes. Um, maybe that was true before the internet um, and, and before communities, which, which I actually don't think so. And, and you, the simple kind of a thought exercise that you can do is like, what if you had a really terrible teacher, but the ratio was super high. You had like one teacher for two kids. It's not the ratio itself isn't going to make the learning outcomes better if the teacher is really bad, right? In fact, it might actually make it worse because they have less data points and, and other people to learn from. And so what we found was um, having these two directors who are super awesome and the people who we bring on and we hire full time to be in the room are like former founders. They've worked mm -hmm. at top tech companies, influential roles at startups, maybe VC or consulting. Like they're not teachers. They're people, like they might be a PM at SpaceX in LA, right? And we're hiring for LA right now. Like these are the types of people and they're not taking a massive pay cut either. So we try and make sure that they can view this as a, as a viable kind of career for themselves, yeah. right? And um, it's almost like a hybrid between McKinsey and YC, but instead of providing world-class guidance to CEOs, we're providing world-class guidance to young people. And again, instead of building unicorn companies, we're building unicorn people. And instead of YC being once every two weeks, we're once a week, a little bit more high touch, things like that. Um, okay, so that's the first part of, of the question, the cohort size, right? It was just a lot of iteration, um, community-based learning, vibes, um, getting to meet each other, holding each other accountable, all that stuff. Uh, in terms of can they actually learn about uh, one of these topics to a deep enough level to be able to have some sort of impact um, or build projects or whatever? Uh, they absolutely can. And this is one of the... the I, the, I want to dispel one of the main misconceptions of, of just learning in general is people think like people have been studying AI and, and genomics and all this stuff for years and years and years. And so just because that's the case, it's impossible to build things or work on something without getting your PhD. That's not the case. Obviously those people are really smart, but it, there, there are some things that you can do um, to get started and at least get to like a level three, level four, level five understanding. And the analogy that I use is like, say you wanted to be an amazing ping pong player and someone just in passing, you don't even know who this person is, but in passing, they were like, Hey, the best way to actually be an amazing ping pong player is to hit the ball with your elbow. And you just believe this person. Okay. You don't even know who this person is. They just said it. So you believe it. So you spend the next 12 years of your life hitting this ping pong ball with your elbow. And all of a sudden the best ping pong player in the world comes by and he's like, or he or she's like, what are you doing? It's totally um, wrong. Hit, yeah, like hit, use this paddle. <laughs> Let me train you for a month on how to be an amazing ping pong player using this paddle. In one month, training with the best ping pong player in the world using a paddle, you will be way better than you training for 12 years with your elbow, right? Like mm -hmm. that, that's crazy orders of magnitude um, in terms of time, but you're going to be better. And so the current way we learn, um, I, I would say, you know, how, I don't know if you've heard this phrase, but a lot of people say this thing like education is broken, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. um, I actually just think it's incorrect, right? If you had a bowl and you turned the bowl over and then you tried to put cereal on that, it just doesn't do the function, right? It, it's just incorrect. And so um, I think uh, the best way to learn, the, the, the more quote unquote correct way to learn is through project-based learning. How can you actually apply this thing? If I think about what I learned in high school and what I retain, what I remember from like the, from a content perspective. Okay. So you learn a bunch of other stuff, 
um, how to be independent, maybe sometimes and, and, and yeah, working with well, like sometimes, right. It really depends on, um, uh, but I don't want to, I don't want to kind of get down that path, but um, shoot, I lost my train of thought. Can you remind me what I was saying? So we're basically talking about, you know, the, the, I think you're touching more on the practicality of things, right? So, Oh yeah. Project-based learning. Yeah. Right. So, so um, at school, when I think about the content that I learned in, in high school, I probably remember like 2%, 5% of the actual stuff. But when I remember what I learned at McKinsey, for example, or any of the projects that I built or work that I've done, I probably remember close to 90% of it. Uh -huh. um, skills are a perfect example, right? So like skills, you practice a skill over and over again versus like, like if you wanted to be an amazing basketball player, you're not just going to watch a bunch of film. You then got to take the free throws, right? You then got to do that. Like you actually have to do it and you have to apply it. And so um, some of our students, uh, they go through this process at TKS called Explore, Focus, Innovate. And Explore is when they're just learning about all these different technologies, figuring out what they're excited enough about to go deep into. And once they do that, they dedicate at least, you know, maybe three to four months going deep in a specific technology and building projects. And there's three projects that they got to build throughout that time. The first two are called replicates. And then the third is called a create. So a replicate is like, say you don't even know, know how to code and you want to build and you, and you get excited about AI and, and maybe computer vision specifically. Um, you might, you just have to learn the syntax and then just follow this tutorial. Super easy. Build this like computer vision algorithm for lane detection, as an example. Um, some people might think that's very difficult, but there's a lot of tutorials and courses or whatever to do that. Literally follow it step by step. And now you feel so accomplished because you built something that is functional and it works. And you're like, hey, this is cool. Now, the next replicate that they do is way harder, like way, way harder. Orders of magnitude harder. Um, and you know, throughout this process, they're going to be like, should I do this? I want to quit. <clears throat> TKS isn't for me. I don't know if I blah, 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 like all these things come to, but when they overcome these hurdles, it's like climbing a mountain and regretting and like thinking about going down and, and not wanting to summit. But when you actually get to the top, it's the best feeling in the world. And you overcome that hospital, uh, that obstacle and you change as a person. Um, and then your third project is called a create. Now that you've built this awesome skill and now that you know that you've overcome that hurdle and you can do it, where can you apply that to something completely brand new and you figure it out? So a lot of students will come up to us. And this, and so this is really where we train dealing with ambiguity, right? A lot of students will come up to us uh, and they'll say, you know, can I get some feedback on my creates? Should I do this? Blah, blah, blah. And I'll probably tell them not to do something if it's too easy. But most of the time, the answer is you figure it out. Right. In the real world, no one's going to tell you what to do or what to build. Yep. You make a decision, right? Face the ambiguity and make a concrete decision of how you want to spend the next month or two months of your life. I'm not going to tell you how to do that. You got to make the decision and you got to live with it and say you don't like it halfway through. Then you got to make the decision whether you want to stop or whether you want to keep going. And it's very intentional. Like everything at TKS is training. It's not meant to be graded. Like we don't, we don't evaluate them through grades or anything like that in TKS. It is literally meant to simulate life, right? How do you problem solve? How do you deal with ambiguity? Uh, being collaborative versus competitive, which school is ultra competitive right now. Uh, it's kind of silly to the, the level it's gotten. How do you communicate well? I mean, all of those things, I think, are basic principles that any of us would say we value in people. But I would argue we're training the opposite of uh, in traditional environments. So, um, yeah, we're, we're super intentional about everything we do at TKS, the way we structure, like the things that we say, the structure behind uh, you know, the sessions, the, the, the process for learning, all of that is, is super well thought out.
Yeah, well, dude, it's also very timely. I mean, yesterday I was uh, I was going through LinkedIn and uh, saw this uh, this post by it was Eric Jansen, but I think he quoted James Clear, and it basically said, you know, the person who learns the most in any classroom is the teacher. If you really want to learn a topic, then teach it, write a book, teach a class, build a product, start a company. You know, the act of making something will actually force you to learn more deeply than uh, reading ever will. So yeah, and by of, the way, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I was going to say, by the way, just to give you an example of what the students are up to and just the listeners an example, because I just said project-based learning and I realized that a lot of listeners might not know what some of the students are working on. Yeah. Um, so one of our students, uh, Ben, he built a ring that can non-invasively measure blood glucose and cholesterol levels without penetrating the skin. So it's like real-time monitoring of uh, you know, heart That's disease, insane. diabetes. Yeah, so it's like Theranos <laughs> that works. That doesn't need a, a drop of blood. And right? how old is he? And, He's 19 now, but he joined at 16. And when he joined at 16, he didn't know anything about any of this stuff, right? Anything about AI, anything about medical devices. Um, and he just raised a, a $3 million round from some of the top investors in the world. Um, but this is the stuff that he was working on because it was the intersection of AI and medical devices, right? And so when you're thinking about the intersection of these things, you're able to come up and conceive of really interesting ideas that you couldn't have before. Uh, Ananya at 14, when she joined, she was able to, she was on the team that cured muscular dystrophy and mice using CRISPR at 14. Now they're on human trials. Then she figured out a way to share genomics data on the blockchain because she realized that there wasn't a good way of sharing data, you know, like the 23andMe's of the world were collecting. So she built that uh, for Consensus and SickKids, which is a major research hospital here in Toronto. And uh, now she's a brain computer interface developer. So she's figured out a way to control prosthetic limbs with her mind, electric cars, music. Uh, so she built that. Now she's working at IBM. So she started off as an intern, now leading a team, helped file a patent for them. And on the side, she's building a jetpack, which I promise you she's going to build this jetpack. Dude, I want, I want the first iteration. I'll be the guinea pig. <laughs> yeah, dude, she's, she's awesome. But I mean, going back, going back to, I mean, the point about the process is first she discovered CRISPR. So she was in the lab. She was able to do that. Then she was working on blockchain projects. She, she did her own ICO at the time where ICOs were starting to become illegal. It's called Peach Coin. So she stopped doing that. But at that time, she could now conceive of the intersection between genomics and blockchain, right? Or BCIs and AI when she was trying to optimize signal to noise ratio for um, controlling the prosthetic arm, right? We have Tommy who's working at Rigetti right now, which is one of the world's leading quantum computing companies. He pretty much came in. Um, you know, they, they typically hire PhDs from like Stanford, MIT, Caltech, all that stuff. This is an 18-year-old kid. I would say he was pioneering, quote-unquote, quantum machine learning when other people were doing that at the same time. Um, this was back in like 2017, right? And, and people like that word wasn't really being used, but he looked into quantum. He did a focus in quantum, and then he did a focus in AI. So he was thinking about how to kind of combine these things together so to give listeners a sense of what are the types of things and there's way more there's like tons of other examples um intersection of genomics and nanotech to cut down the the time and cost it takes to sequence our genes right now it's a thousand dollars by Illumina. they're trying to get it to 100 they were able to figure out a way to cut out the pcr uh, amplifi amplification process which there's three steps in the gene sequencing process that's the second one um using the intersection right so yeah they might not be you know at like a level 20 understanding but mm -hmm. I think they're at like level five, level six at the intersection of a bunch of these different technologies to be able to conceive of things that even experts in their one field um, can't really conceive of because they maybe only have a level two understanding of the other fields. Yeah. You know what I also really appreciate from that is like you're really getting uh, students excited about tech and, and it's not just like one dimension of tech. You give them 
you know, several of, of different emerging tech that, that we see practically in life right now and the opportunity to not only learn from pretty much the, the best kind of in the business. And correct me if I'm wrong, the, the teachers do themselves go through an, kind of an educational process as well, right? Even if I'm like a, a previous founder, three-time exit, whatever, like whatever my, my history is, I still have to go through some educational program with TKS to get me sort of primed to be a teacher. Isn't that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so so this is why the director role is so appealing. So any of you yeah. out there, you know, we're you know, listeners, we're expanding and we're looking for directors in, in a bunch of different cities around the world. Um, but the cool thing about this is That's that what I love. yeah, it's almost like an alt MBA. Yeah. Like so directors might come in. So say they might know a little bit about AI. Well, as a part of this role, a year from now, from doing TKS, they're gonna be able to have conversations with PhDs on AI, quantum, nanotech, genetics, stem cells, like all of these things. So as part of your job, like 30% of your job is to learn, is to be the best version of yourselves and then showcase it on the weekend. The other 30% is to learn about or is to uh, build relationships with some of the most influential people locally and globally. Um, Isabella and I were in a meeting with Satya Nadella randomly in Vegas just, just because he thought it was cool what we were doing and, and wanting to meet Izzy because she spoke on stage in front of 30,000 people in front of the T-Mobile arena. And we were just jamming about stuff. And I was in that room and, and, you know, whenever we go to Vegas, we stay at Tony Shays. He was the one responsible for bringing us down to Vegas. Um, he met some of our students. He was really excited. Um, but these are the types of people that we're starting to meet. And I remember being in that room and I'm like, one of my mental models for figuring out who should be a good director is who would I trust to be in this room instead of me to rep well and have a really good conversation with Satya, right? right. And those are the types of people that we want. So people who have a high risk profile, who are charismatic, who give really good feedback. Um, they're intellectually curious, mission driven, and it doesn't even have to be about quote unquote education or you know solving all the world's most important problems, but just mission driven about something. Right? Is, is something bigger than themselves driving them in life or is it all about me, me, me? Um, and as long as you have that, I think you know these people would be really great directors, typically like five to nine years out of school. So I'm doing like a little shameless plug here, but there might be some listeners here who are like, damn, this is like an awesome, uh, potential role. And that's our biggest challenge in expanding to cities is finding these directors. I think we find these directors, everything else will fall into place. But yeah, they definitely go through a training pro. I would say, because <clears throat> they're going through TCAS as well, pretty much by themselves, exactly. right? Throughout the week. And so, um, yeah, it, for some people, it's definitely kind of mentally like an alt MBA for themselves to just get a better understanding of themselves, get a better understanding of the world. So whatever they do after, um, you know, they'll be able to crush life. I really had to, I mean, I love that, by the way. So get ready, man. I'm, I'm gonna come to you. I won't, I won't nice. Um, the, the the one thing I'm thinking of is, you know, typically when we talk about tech and and especially as it relates to the job market and the changing uh, landscape, and, and we know that a lot of um, kind of previous generations are uh, sort of cornered in the primary, the secondary sectors. Not a lot of them are are fluent in, in tech, right? Uh, as some of us may have the different opportunities that they, they didn't have and it just wasn't really present at the time. Do you ever think of creating like a TKS bo baby boomer version of this where it's actually probably more relevant because, I'm, I'm, and I'm not saying that it's not as relevant for, for students age 13 to 17. I'm just saying that I think the biggest fear is not necessarily for the younger generation. The biggest fear right now is is tech going to take over the, the, the sort of employment landscape? And if I'm in my 40s or 50s and I don't really know much about tech, what the hell am I supposed to do? How do you think about that? So you're talking about like the upskilling type market. So like this whole idea of, you know, AI, self, 
you know, tra driving dr trucks takes over like the 1 million. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think that my kids in the next three years are going to be the ones who solve that problem. I don't think that's a problem um, that we'll necessarily focus on specifically. And the way that I'm thinking about things, and this is just our ethos and Navita and I's vision is we're very much longer term thinkers. And there's been plenty of times throughout history where jobs have been disrupted. And yeah, there has been a period of hardship um, and, and discomfort. But I think we will correct just as I have just faith in humans that we will adapt and figure it out, even if people go through this period of struggle and mm. hopefully someone solves that problem. Um, but I really want to make sure that I'm focused on building the infrastructure. And again, this is the mission of, of TKS, right? How can we build that infrastructure to solve some of the most important problems in the world that are affecting hundred millions and, and billions of people? And I think the best way to do that is actually, so if we did expand, um, we'd actually probably go younger versus older. Um, and I think it's a very diff different curriculum, first of all, to go older, uh, mm -hmm. number one. And number two, um, it, it's just harder to it really is harder to have a growth mindset the older you get, I think, um, at mass, right? And so if you think about like for university students, um, a lot of them just paid, you know, or, or, or made a super high financial commitment to go to this institution. They chose this program with very little information. And now all of a sudden, as part of the quote unquote curriculum or the content, you're asked to almost reevaluate your life and what you're doing. And you need a lot of courage to make a change. I mean, university is expensive to switch. It's taboo to switch. Right. And so, and I, I even felt this in my next 36 experience. So for those of you who don't know um, what next 36 is, it's this program where they take 36 students from across Canada, give them $50,000 at the time, the $200,000 valuation, start a company um, without even having an idea team or whatever. Um, and I was one of the youngest ones in the program. And I remember by the end at, at pitch day, um, we asked for like 500k and you know i asked my team before i was like hey are we down to do this everybody said yeah um but then literally the day after we made our pitch and then you know we were starting to have conversations with people um the risk aversion sort of came in uh and it was like actually no let me just finish my degree or let me do this let me like there's there's always excuses and reasons to why not to do something now um whereas so I think that's a little bit more difficult to kind of get around. And I think YC does a really good job of that of people who aren't as risk averse and people who are already working on things. There's a lot of other institutions and communities in the world where you'll be able to get that, but I just don't think it exists at all for the younger demographic, especially when you're making some really important decisions. Um, and then even going lower, like 10 to 13 years old, we have a program called foundations that we're piloting um, to get people to be like conscious and sentient humans. Right. Like yeah. you're not really conscious. Yeah, I think you can be, and we're, and we're starting to prove that now. But like when you're 10, you just kind of like wake up, you do your things, you, you're living your life without intention, but start applying um, that intentionality. Yeah, yeah, earlier on, like, I mean, one of our driving principles for these kids um, and these students is how can you be the CEO of your own life as early as possible? Exactly. Um, I like most of the time they're employees of their own life and their parents are the CEOs and then like their mentors and whatever on their board of directors but how can they be the CEO of their own life and then have their parents uh, and mentors, whatever, kind of be on their board. Um, but that probably doesn't happen until like, you know, a lot of people even after they're 22, um, maybe until you get to university and you just got to figure that out. But um, again, I think that intentionality is really important. So again, long-winded answer kind of digre digressed a little bit, but in terms of our mission and our ethos, it probably makes sense for us to expand younger versus older. Um, a, because I think our kids will solve a lot of these problems. Hopefully that's the goal. 
and B, I think there's a lot of uh, resources and communities and institutions that currently exist for that demographic. You just got to work harder to find them. But if you won't work hard, if you won't work hard to find those things in the first place, then TKS wouldn't be the right fit for you anyway. Yeah, and I, I think just last thing on this one is, is hopefully parents who are actually supportive, understanding of this vision, you know, realizing that this is really, I think, a necessity now. I mean, if I had kids, I would do no doubt send them to, like TKS. I mean, it wouldn't even be almost a question. I mean, obviously, so long as they're passionate about tech, something they really want to get into and grow, it's not like I would force them. But um, I think that because coming from a, a Middle Eastern background, I mean, I'm very grateful that my parents were always supportive, but I think you touched on this, the whole, you know, traditional education, going to an actual institution. I think that there is still some connotation towards that, you know, like, oh, you have to go to university and uh, depending on, on your background, you might have more social pressures with that. I know it's getting better. And depending on where you live, you know, you get, you get away from it. But I just think that we have to get away from that kind of mindset and, and understand, you know, this is the sort of second evolution of education. We're no longer uh, required. I mean, even if you look at an MBA as an example, you know, coming from someone who started business, uh, the value of an MBA just is, is dropping literally every single year. And you see that by attend attendance rates, even by the, the tuition amounts that are actually dropping uh, from the Ivy League standards. And so I just think this is a, this is a, a very viable alternative. I think everyone should I could, I could talk about this point forever. Okay. So <laughs> when we think about like universities and your MBA right now, a couple of my friends are, are going to HBS yeah. and in total, they might be spending 250K maybe even 300K US, all their expenses, everything like that, right, going there. But I think tuition is, is closer to around 200K. Um, and that's for two years. Imagine you had to go through this exercise of like, if I had to spend 100K in a year on really interesting experiences and learning opportunities and personal growth, man, you could do a lot with that versus sitting in a class. I wouldn't class think twice. Classes. Sorry? I wouldn't think twice, man. Yeah. And, but but that's what people people are doing. It's like we're we're paying a lot to be put in this structured environment. And yeah, I know there's a network. I know there are positives. I'm talking about the actual dollar value. It's getting to the point where the ROI versus your opportunity cost is almost like it, it, it's hard to conceive of it making sense anymore. Yeah. Like before, okay, it was conceivable. You can rationalize it. But even for and forget about your MBA. Um, when you're thinking about university, especially in the U.S. and Canada, I mean, we have it way better, but it's still on average it takes seven years to pay back your OSAP, uh, which is the the current statistic. In the U.S., um, you know, tuition for your undergrad ends up being like sixty, hundred k sometimes, and you really got to think, you know, is it getting to the point where the ROI just doesn't add up, no matter how much you try and slice it and rationalize it, versus other and, and by the way, it's not just how much you're you're uh, you're paying to go to university because in that time, say on average, people go to university um, for the ones who are going to university for five years, right? Mm -hmm. It's the amount of money that you could have made in that five years on top of how much you paid. And then the trajectory right. that you would have been, uh, been doing after that. And so, um, yeah, man, it, it, it's starting to feel really difficult versus some of these other models that are coming out, which I think is really interesting. Um, some of you know the people here might've heard of Lambda school, um, which, you know, they're taking a little bit of heat right now, but it's interesting to explore these types of models. How can I align my incentive with ISAs, which are income sharing agreements where, you know, this institution is completely free. And if we get you a job above a certain amount, then we take X percent of your salary for the next couple of years. And now the incentives are for this institution to get you the highest paying best jobs. 
because they get a piece of that. So the, the, the incentives are aligned, whereas if you go to university um, and they have a waiting list of all these people, they don't care. They know they are going to get their money all the time. <clears throat> um, and actually the economics of universities aren't really making sense. Most universities are making money and now focusing on international students. It's actually, and, and, and the reason why that's important is because they're not focusing on student outcomes, right? They're focusing on how they can just make a better margin with the current amount of students they, they can take in versus how can I make sure that these kids are developing as much as possible. And so um, when you actually like dig into it and get into the guts and you start looking at the numbers, and again, if you're very thoughtful about it and you apply some of these thought exercises, it's like, man, it's becoming very, very difficult. So to me, it's a no brainer just from a financial. Um, yeah, the cost of value is, is immensely yeah. different. And, and I think that's going to become a lot more clear in as yeah. early as like five years and it's starting to become clear, but like, it's just going to get to a point where people are like, I can't, I'm getting this other job here. Even if I'm working at a bank as a town, like whatever, um, it, it's just going to hard to be able to kind of rationalize it. But that's my two cents on that. Love it. We, we should have another podcast on this topic, man. <laughs> but uh, the, the Middle Eastern view of education and, and, and why it's changing. Um, last question for you, buddy, is, is from, I mean, you, you've seen a lot of students go through your cohorts. Um, a lot of them have been very successful, as you pointed out, with different use cases and examples of those, what, what those students have been able to accomplish in such a short time post-TKS. What advice would you give now to someone in that age rate, right, 13 to 17, from what you've learned and from the, the students that you actually know and have interacted with? Like, what, what are those key successes that you see in those students that make them very, very different and set them apart from, from the rest? Yeah, so one of our mantras at TKS, and, and this is just like, it's almost like a physical principle, like physics, right? It's the only way to achieve unconventional success is to follow an unconventional path. Like you can't expect to do the same thing as everybody else and achieve a different result. That's like someone just hoping to take really low risk uh, actions and then have a really high probability of success, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, achieving a high amount of success, it just doesn't work unless there's like crazy notion of, of luck, right? Of like something just landing in your lap or you just dug up this treasure. So, so you, you got to do that. And what I tell kids is whenever you're making, so your decision-making framework, um, when you're choosing between places you want to spend your time, I would say, and this doesn't actually apply for the kids, this applies to everybody. And again, this is just my opinion is solve for being interesting. Just solve for being interesting. So when you're making two decisions in the back of your mind, be like, what is more interesting? And by definition, the one that's more interesting is an experience or, or uh, you know, something that you work on, you're spending your time on that most other people have not done or right. don't do. It's easy to get those things, um, but it's harder to get those experiences that most other people haven't done because there's a reason why they haven't done those. So I would say software being interesting. Part of that is you got to have the courage to be able to, um, you know, make those choices. And I don't want this advice to sound like an outcome, like just have more courage or be better or be interesting. I want to make sure that it's very actionable of how you do that. And so how do you develop that courage? Um, Some people have this like natural zero apps given mentality where they're like, Oh yeah, I can easily do this. But some people feel, excuse me, anxiety and pressure and whatever. Um, And so the way to build that courage is to surround yourself with a system of encouragement, right? If you're around people all the time who are telling you, you can't do certain things or they're not trying to be unconventional or they, you know, talk shit about you and they put you down. You just got to make a change. 
put yourself in an environment where people are building you up and supporting you and encouraging you and whatever, for whatever you want to do. And you can fail and say you make a wrong decision. That's okay. That's life, right? But you, you want to be the one making your own decisions. Again, training yourself to become the CEO of your own life. Um, but the only way you can do that is if other people support your decisions and not, and not influence your, because then it's not your decision, it's their decision, right? So solve yeah. for being interesting, put yourself, uh, surround yourself with really awesome people. I'd say those are like my, my two foundational things that I would tell people. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thanks so much, man. I, honestly, I've been, I'm, you know, looking forward to this podcast and, and just kind of uh, digging into more of the, the specifics, the structure. Um, last one on, on just kind of how people can reach out. I know obviously the website, I'll link that, uh, but, but how do you recommend people take that next step after this, after listening to this podcast? Well, if you're a student and you're in New York, Boston, Ottawa, Vegas, Toronto, or Seattle, San Francisco, LA, uh, SF, definitely apply. Go to our website, www.thekcsociety, like the letter K. We need to change our URL, thekcsociety.com. And if you're interested, and so we're hiring for a bunch of different roles. If you are interested in working with us, you can reach out to hello at thekcsociety.com, or you can reach out to me directly. My name is Nadim, Nadim at thekcsociety.com. My inbox right now, so personally, like I'm really struggling to manage my inbox. Um, so I need to get an assistant. That's one of the roles that we're hiring for. If anybody out there uh, you know, wants to join a, a high growth company and can work with some really awesome people. So I will get back to you. It might just take me a little bit of time because I'm, I'm not good at this part yet, but I will be soon. So yeah, that's the best way you can probably reach out. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. And I'll see you next time.